Well, tonight uh, we are um, continuing our series, as Tim said, Fight Valiantly, particularly tonight looking at uh, Fight Valiantly Against the Enemy. And we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10 to start. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable richness of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, Lord, we want to pray tonight for you to bring revelation through your word and by your spirit and for your protection over us as we engage with these difficult and challenging matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Mike Stickle was writing on his personal blog, and uh, this is what he published. I would like to proudly announce that I am currently under new management. That's right, Mike Stickle is now being run by a new dedicated team of fantastic experienced and driven managers. This new management team would like to take this opportunity to thank everyone involved in the seamless transition. The previous management did a terrific job. We're going to improve on on what they've done and open up some new avenues of growth. Um, It's a bold thing to post, uh, to tell everyone that you you are now under new management. It's all good. It's all change uh, in the product of Mike Stickle. I I love this idea. I could hire a team of new managers to represent Will van der Hart. Uh, The old Will van der Hart, I apologize for all the ways in which he's let you down all of his failures and faults. I've appointed a new fantastic team of strategists and managers, a PR company going to rejuvenate and revitalize my life and transform it for a new PR campaign of Will van der Hart is great and you're all going to believe it. Of course you won't. The reality is that um, we all love the idea of being under new management, not not under God's management, just under kind of new management that we've employed in order that we would do better and look better and feel better generally because ultimately that is our ambition. But this idea, Mike Stickle's idea, is right at the very beginning of Scripture. It's right there, posted in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. What does Adam and Eve want? What do they want? Like, what appeals to them in the deceit that they first experience? It's not the apple. Like, forget the apple. It's just a symbol. The apple is not important. What does, what does the apple represent? What does the enemy, what does the devil suggest it's all about? Well, it's about something much more significant than a nice, juicy apple. It's about this idea that equality with God is something to be gained. That somehow attainment and knowledge and wisdom and self-improvement could be yours aside from the idea of God. You know, the enemy says straight away, you know, surely God did not say. Just that little idea that actually 
you know, surely God's holding something back from you. Surely, actually, there's a way of self-improvement aside from God. Now, when we think about spiritual warfare, we're often thinking about something which isn't spiritual warfare. And I would suggest to you that actually many of the core tenets of spiritual warfare today, something we're talking about in this talk, are actually very subtle and very entrenched in the way in which we live, so much so that they are not deemed to be spiritual warfare at all. Many of them are deemed to be actually quite good things that we should probably lend our ear to. If we go back again to that Genesis story, we're still saying, I know, I kind of get Adam and Eve's desire for self-improvement, you know, quality with God, something to be gained, and Actually, knowledge is a good thing to attain to as well, and I kind of, I kind of sympathise with them. I get it, but but this is this, uh, if you like, this merry-go-round that we've been on ever since. This idea that actually we can live aside from God as the kind of core tenant of spiritual warfare. And let's think a little bit. But I need a couple of volunteers who's going to come up and help me. So that's terrible, isn't it? Yes, go on, Fiona. Thank you so much. Someone else? Yeah, go on. Perfect, actually. Right, Luke, why don't you come for it? Choose what, what appeals to If you had to fight a battle, what appeals to you most on my table of death? <laughs> the axe. Wonderful. You stand there with the axe. What, what appeals to you most on my table of death? Great. We need a couple more volunteers. This is too much fun to miss. Who else is going to come out? Come on, run up and help me with my table of death. Yes, go on, Eleanor, thank you. We can, we can do with a couple more. Yeah, Eleanor, what appeals to you on my table of death? Go on, yeah, sensible, okay. One last person, go on, yeah, Alex, come on. Yeah, come on, TM, you come choose something as well. What do you fancy? Yep, okay, it's a tiny bit on the small side for your big brain. Yes, TM straight in there with a sword. Now, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, you know, the thing... <laughs> We're not going to be able to say this very seriously, are we? Now, now, what appeals to people, typically, now, you know, obviously the choices are diminished on the table, but what appeals to people most naturally when it comes to fighting a war are picking up an axe, picking up a sword, picking up another sword, because we all have this idea that actually we want to bring the battle. We want to, you know, if I was going to defend myself against an attacker, I want something that I can attack back with. The, the, the less interesting things are the much more neutral things, the kind of benign things. I mean, I can do something with a shield. The helmet is a bit more benign, like the breastplate. You know, th these things are a defense of the self. They're not about attack. I can't attack someone with my breastplate or with my helmet. I'm just there to defend myself. And, and it's interesting that actually you're wondering why well, there's garlic on the table. That's because there's a story about spiritual warfare. Um, there is actually garlic on the table. We'll talk a bit about that later on. But you know, what we tend to believe where spiritual warfare is concerned is that actually we've got to bring the fight to the devil. Yeah? And, and much spiritual warfare has been parodied and, and actually has been a diversion from the real battle we face because everyone's so busy trying to whip out their spiritual swords and axes to try and attack the devil. That, that isn't sensible play. But actually, what, what we read in, in Ephesians chapter 6 is actually that the kind of the, the core values of transformation and protection are these defense mechanisms. Thanks so much, everyone. You've proved my point very well.
When we're thinking about spiritual warfare, I want you to think about this in the natural. And when I say the natural, what I want you to think about is the fact that spiritual battles and spiritual warfare are part of what is natural to you because you live in a world order which is spiritual as well as physical. Now, it's really interesting doing a talk about spiritual warfare because in my head when I'm saying these things, I'm thinking all these people think I'm completely loopy. That you're all sitting there going, oh, wow, this is really risky. Is this recorded? Can I share this with my friends? This is, this is quite an odd talk. But, but actually, when we go back into the kind of world order idea, what we recognize is actually that everything is spiritual as well as physical. And so what we're describing here is something that needs to become normative in our spiritual language r rather than a parody of. And actually, I believe that the enemy, call him what you will, the, the devil, Satan, loves the idea of Halloween because it actually closets the spiritual negativity that he carries into one evening of the year and spooky pumpkins and ghosts and ghouls, which really aren't that scary. And so somehow we identify the spiritual stuff as a bit of a parody of itself. It's a bit of harmless fun. It's, it's, it's these spooky ghosts and skeletons. Now, Tim and I, uh, the other clergy, in our role, we deal with death. And actually, death and dead bodies is not as scary as you think it is. Like, it's painful and it's sad sometimes and it's wounding and it, and, and it's, and it's, it, it makes your heart ache. But I don't ever feel afraid. I don't know about you, Tim. I don't, Tim doesn't ever feel afraid. I, I never feel afraid. The only, I'll tell you one little story. The only time I've ever did feel afraid was I was doing a, a funeral at... A, a cemetery and it was a really windy day with a very strong crosswind and sideways rain and I arrived 15 minutes early and I was just waiting by the graveside it was at Greenford Cemetery right out in the wilds and, uh, and, and I stood there for about 10 minutes in the rain under my umbrella waiting for the coffin to arrive and then these two hands appeared over the top of the actual pit like muddy hands and then the whites of these two eyes suddenly poked up and at that point, I really did freak out. It turned out that the grave digger was still down in the grave, but because it was so windy and, and it was raining so hard, I couldn't hear him. So he actually appeared out of the mud, like he was just being resurrected from the dead. I, I've never got over that one. He did, to me, he did say to me, I, I probably made you afraid then, didn't I? I was like, uh, yes, absolutely terrified. But, you know, what I want to say in all seriousness is, I'm going to move this because I'm going to fall over it in just a minute, and that's going to be part of the spiritual warfare talk. What I want to sort of help you to see is how a parody of evil is part of the plan of evil. If you make evil look kind of ridiculous, you suggest that evil doesn't exist. But actually, if you can see evil, if you like, in the normal worldview and say evil exists and actually we're spiritual beings, suddenly you go, actually, spiritual warfare doesn't look like me kind of charging around, making kind of cross signs at everyone and trying to command uh, the devil to flee. Um, when it comes to this kind of journey of understanding, in fact, that work is a lot of what the enemy, again, wants us to engage with. I was part of a very, very charismatic uh, community in my early 20s, and there were a lot of people involved in spiritual warfare of old, and some of you who are a little older might 
remember some of the Neil T. Anderson ministries, bondage breakers, you know, this kind of idea you know, of kind of going around stronghold breakers. And there was all, all these special prayers you would pray. And my leader at the time, who was very, very wise, we actually did deal with some really difficult things in the life of the church. He said to me, we'll never focus on uh, decreasing the darkness, only focus on increasing the light. He said, you know, if the devil can't stop you doing what he wants you to do, he will get you to do a whole lot more of it. And I found that information really, really helpful in my Christian ministry because what I've noticed as someone who specializes in mental emotional health is that many of the people who are running around kind of doing this all the time went on to have some quite significant mental emotional breakdowns. And, and, and I'm not correlating mental health with the spiritual dynamic at all, but what I'm saying is that if that becomes our, our narrative spiritually, often we begin to see the enemy behind every bush and every tree. And actually, again, that is a kind of deception that can lead us down a path away from those things that God has called us to do. Because this is all about living in confidence for what God has already done. You see, what the enemy wants you to believe is that actually the enemy hasn't actually lost. The enemy wants to deceive you. There's two ways in which we understand the enemy in Scripture. He is the, he's the father of lies, is the most important one. He's the deceiver and he's also the accuser. So what the enemy tends to do is, number one, he tends to deceive you or tell you lies. Number two, he accuses you and says you're not worthy of the love of God. So two ways in which he acts. And you can nearly always identify the work of the enemy in either seeding and sowing lies into your life or those of the lives of those, lives of those around you, or of accusing you or others of their unworthiness for sanctification. Now, I reckon every single one of you will be able to acknowledge spiritual warfare in your own life just by that very diagnostic. Have you believed lies about yourself or about others which have been divisive or destructive? Anyone here? Hands up. Great. Every single person in the room has experienced spiritual warfare through deception. Has anyone here felt the devil or the enemy in some way accuse them as not being good enough or not acceptable enough for the love of God in any way? Hands up. Okay. Again, everyone in the room is saying yes. So everyone here has basically acknowledged that they have been part of or are continuing to be part of or experiencing in some way spiritual warfare. Now, again, when I use that term, you're still thinking of all of this. But what I've just said to you is you're already experiencing this as part of your daily journey. And this is normative for Christians. In fact, it's normative for the world. The difference between those in the world and those in the church, those in the world are experiencing spiritual warfare that they can't identify, and those in the church are experiencing spiritual warfare that they can identify. The only difference between the two of us is actually illumination. It's perspective. This is not something that's specific to you or specific to them or even specific to us as priests. You know, it's specific to everyone because right at the beginning of the life and the world was the spirit and was the enemy. So these two things, these two warring realities continue on. So in Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 3, effectively, what Paul is saying out the outlet is, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So the outset here Paul's describing is a state of spiritual being, which is spiritual death. Now, again, it sounds so radical and so kind of overwhelming. It's like, what do you mean, Paul? What, what, what are you describing? 
Now, he was talking here in the tense of the present and continuous, which is, which is not, you know, is not you were dead, or even that you are dead, is that you are dead and you're continuing to be dead. There's a kind of present and continuous way of working. In Romans 7, 24, he says, wretched man that I am, uh, who will set me free from this body of death. So he's, sort of, he's acknowledging that that kind of ongoing spiritual experience is his. And he was probably uh, defining that to something, one of the most brutal forms of Roman execution, in which a rotting corpse was shackled to a living prisoner. And then the living prisoner would kind of die as the corpse that they were shackled to would begin uh, to uh, be- become sort of degenerated and that would condemn the living prisoner to death. That's the Halloween bit of my talk tonight. Sorry about that. But, 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 but the Halloween bit makes sense because this is a, an idea of degeneration. What Paul is describing is a way in which he was shackled to death. And actually, for each of us, even though this might sound like a heavy idea, in some ways in our, in our previous life, before receiving Christ, we're shackled to death. He says in, in part B, you were lived in line with the values and behaviors of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, this is really, really important because, again, when it comes to this idea of, like, spiritual warfare, we, we are, if you like, envisioning an enemy who is physicalized in our experience. And therefore, the idea of kind of combat against that enemy makes perfect sense, seeing as you can battle the physicalized experience with the physical. So the idea of swords and axes is quite a nice idea. And I think historic ideas and kind of fantasies, if you like, like, like Dracula and vampires and kind of, you know, werewolves and other exciting things that young children will be running around as over the next couple of days. They quite appeal to people. Now, try and just hold this in your mind for a minute because you're thinking, how's that appeal? It quite appeals to have evil as some sort of physical thing because you're like, great, there is a werewolf. I will kill it. You know, where's my garlic? And here it is. There is a vampire. I've got my garlic. I will kill it. You know, it's good. It's great when evil is physicalized because I can deal with it. I can somehow beat it down. Now, it was interesting this week because the, one of the, well, only the second um, sentencing, British sentencing, was made public on, on, on the video stream. So now in British courts, People are sentenced, and you can watch their sentencing as a way of acknowledging how justice is being done in the 21st century uh, within the British legal system. Now, trials aren't being televised, but sentencing is being televised in the most serious cases. And this week, someone was sent down for 34 years for murder. Interesting, someone who claimed to be a a, a charismatic Christian who, who murdered another charismatic Christian. That's a terrible story, but if you want a sign that evil exists, here's a great example. And if we believe that evil exists, exists in the church as well as in the world. So we still experience a reality, a spiritual reality. But people like the idea of someone going down for 34 years and watching it on TV because they think, yes, we're beating evil. Like we've dealt with evil. Somehow we've dealt with it. But look again at the text. You lived in line with the values and behaviors of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The air is not qualified. It's not palpable. It's not experiential. It's not something you can quantify and gather and sort of put your garlic next to or drive a sword into or even send to prison. 
Like the reality is that evil is pervasive, that the enemy still roves around like a lion. He still stalks around in the darkness. And this is our reality. I don't want anyone here tonight to be afraid, but I just want to help you to recognize that evil is a reality. And one of the weird things that we experience in Christian ministries is that sometimes you do encounter some really weird things that could only be described as being evil. I've actually got ministry colleagues who only came to Christ because they saw darkness. There, there are quite a number of those people who actually saw supernatural darkness and as a result were saying, well, if, the, if evil exists, then <laughs> firstly, I'm afraid. And secondly, that means God must exist. And therefore, I'm in. I mean, that's got a radical experience to faith. But more people are converted by the darkness than you would imagine. And, and therefore, I want to kind of encourage you not to poo-poo, if you like, the idea of the supernatural, because again, that's a great scheme that the enemy would want you to fall into. It's a great trap that you would just go, oh, well, it's all fairy tales and all a bit of this and that and the other, and actually, here we are. It's real, but it's hiding in plain sight. One of the most common fantasies, and I'd say one of the, if you like, the footholds of the enemy in 21st century living is the idea that we are free-thinking directors and independent companies that actually we are making objective decisions. And it goes right back to that Genesis 3 passage, that actually we might believe that we are running our own show. And, you know, I, I, I struggle pastorally with the idea that actually there is judgment and that people are lost because I want everyone to be in. But, but what, what the scriptures are actually saying here is that actually we are all influenced by the kingdom of the air, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, until we choose otherwise. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There's not a, a qualification or some sort of third group. It doesn't say, well, all the nice people, you know, will sort of not die. Or like anyone, you know, who's kind of just a kind of dude, they'll be okay. Only the real baddies die in Adam. And only, you know, and everyone else really, you know, is made alive in Christ. It doesn't say that. It actually says, in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Now, what's good news for you today is that actually you belonged to the kingdom of the air, but now you belong to the kingdom of Christ. Should you be afraid? No. Again, because the accuser and the father of lies propagate your anxiety by living in fear against an enemy who's already been overcome. But Paul's making a clear statement that we're either working for Adam Incorporated or Jesus Unlimited. You've got to kind of decide what company you want to be part of. There's no other option. In... Um, Verse 3, I think you know, Paul is referencing here what, what life looked like. All of us also lived among them at one time. And this isn't like a kind of annoying Christianese, like let's like be really rude about everyone else, like they're a sort of, oh, all of us lived amongst them, like you know, we were better than they were. What, what Paul's saying is we were all part of the same family um, at one time. We all live like this, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, like everyone else, uh, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, Paul tends to use language around the outworking of behaviors, like 
you know, he used a lot of sexual language around desires and he uses lots of kind of language around behaviors. What he's saying is, look, here is, here is evidence of our lostness. But, but evidence of our lostness is not the qualifying factor. Our lostness existed before the evidence of our lostness. Again, this is the kind of myth that good people kind of just will be fine. Um, these are symptoms of our lostness. And those symptoms stick around even when our disease is gone. We, we fight those battles every day. But Paul's not wanting us to think, oh, well, you know, we used to do good behavior. We used to do bad behavior, so we were baddies. But now we do good behavior, so we're goodies. That's not it. What he's saying is, oh, we were objects of God's wrath. We were living out these bad behaviors as a sign of our symptomology, how we were. But now our symptomology has changed because we, we belong to Christ, but we still can fall into behaviors which are reminiscent of our old lives. So that's how we were living. The bailiffs were coming and they were not happy. We were objects of God's wrath. And you know, I've got to say, I grew up in a church which made me feel like God was just angry all the time. <laughs> you know, and that wasn't really healthy at all because I, God was angry with everyone. We wouldn't sign up to the Evangelical Alliance because they were all going to hell too. There was only about three people who were actually going to heaven. I'm not sure who they were. I definitely wasn't one of them. You know, and uh, it was like the smallest group of heaven occupiers ever. Like if they could have divided the church into other smaller churches, like they would have got down to probably just one person who was like writing all the tweets. Anyway, um, but that isn't how God works. What, what, what we're saying is, Basically, if there were these two camps, if there's this kingdom of the air and the kingdom of Christ, and we were in the kingdom of the air, we were objects of God's wrath. So we're basically on the wrong team. But if we're in Christ, we're not objects of God's wrath because actually we are one with God's son, Jesus. And so what I want to say to you about spiritual warfare is, spiritual warfare is not about picking up your sword and running around after the devil. Spiritual warfare is about identifying and re affirming your true nature as a son or daughter of Christ. So in, on one level, you don't need to be afraid anymore. I'm always afraid about preaching about spiritual warfare. I hate it because I'm always terrified that somehow the devil's going to be roving around trying to like knock me off my bike on the way home to like get me back. And that's my human bit that's saying that. But my spiritual bit is saying, no, I've got authority as a son of God to be able to speak the truth in love because this is what the Lord has called me to. And as I'm speaking the truth, I'm using not a physical sword, which is useless, but I'm using a spiritual sword, which has power. Because the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. The logos and the rema word of God, the written and the spoken word, the spirit of God as word, have power to change. God spoke and the world was formed. Jesus spoke and the lepers were healed. You speak the truth and the enemy fears and flies. So what you speak from your heart is spiritual warfare if it's aligned to the reality that you're a son or daughter of God. Now, let, let's be careful that we don't then fall into this idea of like, I'm going to go around spending my whole time binding and loosing things. Yes, Jesus told the disciples that what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loose in heaven, in a sense, that the binding and loosing ministry was there. But, but it wasn't that we go around all the time going, oh, there's evil, I bind that evil. Oh, that, bind that. You know, quick, like, like, start binding everything. Okay. <coughs> that wasn't, again, that wasn't what Jesus was saying. What he was saying to his disciples was, you've got spiritual authority 
in my name. And the language of binding and loosing was really important in the first century because people were what called bondsmen or bondswomen, which meant they were slave. And their bonds tied them, but they could be liberated from their bonds in the public square and set free. So if you were a slave, you might be bound, even though you were never going to run away, but your bonds were a sign of your slavery. So if you're selling slaves, you bound your slaves, even if they were good slaves who wouldn't run off, because actually it was a sign of their slavery. And if you freed them from their bonds, they were liberated and they were free men or women. So if you were a bondsman or a bondswoman, you were bonded, and if you were a liberated man or woman, you were liberated. So as you express binding and loosing in life, you express your loosing, your freedom, by reaffirming your identity as a son or daughter of God. What you're saying is, I cannot be bound because I'm loosed by Christ. I'm no longer an object of God's wrath. Now, Rob and I wrote the guilt book because we recognize that many, many people in the church were just wandering around saying, I'm, I'm not subject to wrath, I'm a child of God, and yet in their heart they were still bound by guilt and shame. And they were like wandering around with their arms tied. And, and what they were struggling with was this idea that I feel badly, therefore I must be bad. But guilt and shame are not a great identifier of what truth is. Remember, if the enemy is speaking accusations and lies into your life, he'll remind you of all the reasons why you're not a son of God. But does that mean you're not a son of God? No. It just means that you're subject to spiritual warfare. So when you hear those words, break the bonds by reaffirming the claim that Christ has over your life. No, I rebuke that. I am a daughter. I am a son of God. One of the great ways in which we live in slavery in the church is by doing good works. Now, these aren't the good works that Paul's talking about at the end of this passage. These are any works which will get us any affirmation in the public square. It's like, oh, if I could just, if I just did the sound brilliantly, then I'd be in. If I could put out the chairs perfectly, then Jesus would love me. You know, if I could do this, if I could say something useful, if I could pray in an earnest way, you know, if I could lead worship in the perfect way, then I'd know that I'm in. You know, and the church is filled with people who are sons and daughters living as slaves and bondsmen and women. And the, the devil loves that because it's the worst possible advertisement for the kingdom of God. Come to church and we'll make you feel like hell. It is, it is the litmus test of the lies of the enemy that the people in the church rather than living with free joy and love are bound in shame and death why would you join a church someone used to say we did uh, when i was working with the sort of alpha program you know one of the interviews we used to have these vox pops up front and one of them was some bloke on the street you know said oh so you know what do you think about christianity well i feel guilty enough why would i go to church you're like yeah exactly like, you feel bad enough. Why would you want to go to church where people will make you feel doubly bad, triply bad? One of the ways in which we can wage spiritual warfare is by actually living out the lives that Christ has called us to live, not as objects of God's wrath, but as a company of people saved by grace. So if you look at the great joy of spiritual warfare, in verse 4 and 5, it says, but because of his great love for us. Now, this is our spiritual response. Because of his great love for us, not because you did loads of wonderful things on Sunday, but just because of his great love for us, which is the greatest weapon against the enemy. God, who is rich in mercy, that means he doesn't want everyone to go to hell, and he doesn't want everyone to feel bad because he's rich in mercy. That means that his disposition is for your joy and freedom. 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. That means before you did anything good or anything worthy, Christ died for you. That's a spiritual truth. Now, the enemy wants to say, oh, if you want to get in with God, you've got to be a good boy or girl, and you've got to prove that you're worthy of his love. When actually, what it says here is that even before, even when you were living in your transgressions and sins, God died for you. He sent his son to die for you. It is by grace that you've been saved. So Paul is reaffirming the core tenets of spiritual victory, which is ultimately that spiritual victory is God's victory. And again, if I was going to offer you one lesson in spiritual warfare, is that you never forget who daddy is. I've got my youngest son still at that stage. You know, apparently, my dad's bigger than your dad. It might be true because I'm quite tall, but my dad's a black belt at karate. Definitely not true. My dad has guns. No. <laughs> my dad knows how to use nunchucks. Absolutely no. No idea how to do that. My dad's killed. No, I haven't. You know, when you're exercising spiritual warfare, know who your daddy is. Because you're a spiritual child in the playground of life, and ultimately what matters is who's standing behind you. Like, what matters is that your daddy is standing there behind you, and he's already won. Like, when Christ went to the cross and went into the grave and then rose again from the dead, he overcame sin and death. Like, the great table of Aslan broke, and, you know, and, and all the witches celebrated because they believed that actually evil had won. But the mice bit through Aslan's bonds. You know, there's sort of life in the bondsman. And he was resurrected and he roared again. And that's when the great table of sacrifice broke because it was no longer necessary. And the table of sacrifice has been broken in your life because it's no longer necessary. So Christians who try and sacrifice themselves on the altar have lost sight of the fact of the truth that the battle's already been won, Christus victor, and actually your Christian life is not about sacrificing yourself for victory, but standing in the stead of the one who's already done that work for you. That's why it's Christian freedom. That's why you're no longer bound to the account which was yours before when you were lost in your transgressions and sins. This will make sense, right? Is anyone not, am I not making sense? Does it make sense? Okay, it's making sense, great. I'm, I mean, I'd like, I mean, I'm enjoying this topic now because it's like, I feel like I'm just reaffirming all the things that I know are true, which is great because truth is freedom, right? So when we can root ourselves in the scriptures and go, actually, this is what God is saying, it's actually amazing. Let me just spend a few more minutes before we worship because I think this is so important. I love it when Paul gets on a bit of a roll. Maybe I'm on a bit of a roll with Paul right now, just in terms of just wanting to really, really reaffirm something that's really, really powerful. And I've highlighted it in my Bible here in orange, which I'll show to you, just so you know it's important to me. It's in orange. Let me just read these verses to you for a moment. It said, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, you're wondering, why? how has that happened? Well, it's happened in the sense that you are, if you like, hidden in Christ, and Christ is seated with God at the right hand of the Father right now. So if you're like, there is a place for you. There's a lot, Jesus describes it in many different ways. There is a mansion for you. There is a place at the table for you. You're welcome. There's a like an imprint in heaven of you, which you will inhabit when you die on earth. And 
you are no longer just terrestrial beings, you are celestial beings. Tim was just praying for the saints, or not praying for the saints, but praying with the saints. And we have that, Paul uses the phrase of being wrapped up in a cloud of witnesses, this idea that we're, we're, we're together with a great cloud of witnesses of those who are already wrapped up in the heavenly realms. Now you are already welcome and you have a seat at the table which you will inhabit and that's why death doesn't really you know early death is horrible but actually death in older age is a is a welcome transition from our terrestrial being to our celestial being and that can sound crazy but it's not that crazy when you recognize that we are spiritual as well as physical and if we're spiritual as well as physical where does our spirit go when our physical bit dies it all makes perfect sense right and again, Tim and I have seen dead bodies within transition of 30 seconds or less. And we will both attest to the fact that something has manifestly changed. It's not 21 grams. No one gets out a set of scales to work that out. That's not what a soul weighs. But we can tell you right now that actually there is a manifest change between living and dying, which is visible and absolutely supernatural. You only need to see death a few times to know that that's the case. In which case, what I'm saying to you hopefully makes perfect sense. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable richness of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourself, it's a gift of God. Not by work, so no one can boast, because that's a waste of time. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. The final thing I want to say about spiritual warfare is you work out spiritual warfare, not by decreasing darkness, but by increasing light. That means every time you enact the works that God has created for you to do, you are fighting a spiritual battle and expressing spiritual victory. So as long as the church is lost trying to like get off to and fight the ghouls and not busy loving the poor, serving our neighbours, blessing the addicts, supporting the homeless, feeding poor families who are struggling right now, you know, praying for our colleagues at work who don't yet know Jesus, you know, stacking the chairs at the end of a Sunday night service, whatever it is, if we're not doing those things because we're busy over here we, you know, fighting the enemy, we are missing out on one of the core tents of what spiritual victory really looks like. Now, what the enemy wants us to do is get us fighting in a corner against shadows we cannot fight. But what Christ wants us to do is rise up as a church and demonstrate what his love really looks like. If you can turn on the lights, darkness has got no place in the room. And you're all lights. Paul said that you are shining like stars in the universe, dispelling the darkness. That is your spiritual mandate and that is your spiritual opportunity to wage spiritual warfare against an enemy that still exists in the world around us. How are you going to shine like stars in the universe this week, demonstrating that love, that freedom, that identity that's already yours? And how can you live in those pews, whatever you want to call them, in a way that manifests your right, your authority, and your identity. I would love you to languish in those chairs or in this building like this is your front room, not like this is a place where you need to come and perform in order that God loves you. God already loves you. Come here owning the space, living in this center of worship as someone who 
fully identifies with the reality of what you are rather than coming here with an impoverished spirit that says, oh, maybe God will love me, maybe he won't. Come here ready to fight a battle that's already been won and exercise an authority that is already yours in Christ Jesus. Matt, why don't you come and lead us into worship? Um, I'd love you to stand. We've got, you know, I've stolen some time from the band, I'm sorry. Um, I'd love you to, uh, I think we, we, we need to stand, we need to sort of, exercise our spiritual authority in Christ Jesus in different ways. I think we're going to have some prayer ministry over here. And it might be that you feel particularly spiritually oppressed in some way, and that can be a reality. Maybe you feel that there is a history of spiritual oppression in your family, you want breakthrough. It might be that you've encountered things that have really disturbed you in your spirit. We should still pray for those things. So come and receive prayer. But it might also be that you just want to be like, yes, I want to stand in that identity I want to shine brightly. I want to exercise spiritual authority. We also want to pray for you. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to just leave a little space for a moment. We're going to sing some worship, but this isn't a time just to lock out and go, oh, right now I'm worshiping. This is a time when you're going to say, actually, what's this mean to exercise this ministry of spiritual warfare? Jesus, um, we just acknowledge right now that we were lost in our transgressions and sins but we are no longer lost, we have been found. And we identify 100% as sons and daughters of God. We know we still experience the echoes of our old life, but we live wholly in this new life that you've given to us. And we wanna pray that you banish fear in this area of spiritual warfare. Help us to recognize that the battle has already been won and help us to live in the truth that we are already wrapped up with you in the heavenly realms. Give us a new confidence to live the life that you've called us to, the life you've already given us. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and just move amongst us right now. Fill us, restore us, give us a new spiritual vision and truth. Help us to just live with confidence in these dark days. Would you come and fill us right now, Father, and prompt us where we need prayer to make this real. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Just touch us in these moments as we press into you. In Jesus' name, amen.